prophet Hosea. Uh, it's been some weighty and uh, heavy uh, preaching in some ways uh, just because of the severity of God's rebuke of his uh, people and their rebellion uh, and all those things together. Uh, as you're making your way there, I do want to apologize for uh, if you're here and a member and your birthday is between the first week of February, somehow the secretary completely overlooked that first week, so you didn't get put on the birthday list. Um, happy birthday. Uh, uh, we're, we're looking, we're desperately looking into how we can fire the secretary, but we can't seem to find somebody to take his place. <laughs> so. So I, I apologize for that, and I, I will reprint that just in case you missed it, and maybe y'all get some belated happy birthdays. So, uh, I've been thinking this week, and sometimes you can say something that's uh, so controversial that you might grab someone's attention long enough to, uh, to, to go deeper with that. And, and one of the statements I thought about was, uh, you don't need Jesus because you sinned. You need Jesus because there is a nature that keeps sinning. Uh, that sin that you're thinking about when you say, I need a Savior, came from somewhere. Uh, and it was born deep, deep within the very nature of fallen man. And the main reason you need Jesus is because unless something happens in regards to that nature, you will keep sinning. You will sin from now to the day you leave this world because that nature can only produce bad fruit. It's a bad tree. And so I say, obviously, you and I have sinned and we need a Savior. But we need more than just a Savior from those sins. We need, we need some sort of rescue or recreation or, to use the Bible word, new birth to do away with that nature that produces that sin. That's our greatest need. Because you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven with an old nature, even if you can somehow discipline yourself not to act upon that old nature, because it's sinful and it's fallen. God gave Adam the word, even in the garden, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And we've been dying ever since. We're born to die uh, in our fallenness, and that is a heavy thing to think about. But that's what this passage of Scripture this morning, chapter 7 particularly, uh, strikes me as, is essentially God saying that there is a turning that is not a returning. In fact, I, the more I read this this week, the more I begin to believe that in the seventh chapter, God is responding primarily to, prof, to the prophet Hosea who in the first person in chapter 6 is, is reaching out to his people and saying to them, come, let us return to the Lord. Something that really struck me this week about chapter 6 and that introduction is that Hosea is, is a part of the people. He's the prophet of God and I think he's a righteous man and he's obeying God now in regards to the taking of Gomer as his wife, even to his own herd and probably to the mockery of everyone in Israel. But he doesn't exclude himself from the people of God. He doesn't say, Israel, you need to return to the Lord. He said, let us. And there was just a, an encouragement for me in that to some way this week and a sobering realization as well is that 
You may proclaim the truth of God to a, a wayward generation uh, blinded by the darkness, but you're living here too. It's directly relevant to me that I'm living in the dark world and that I'm going to in many ways experience the consequences of such darkness in my own life, even while I call upon folks to come with me and let's return to the Lord. We don't need prophets who are sitting on a hill telling America what we ought to do. We need men who understand that if America doesn't do it, we're going to suffer right along with them. Only difference is we have a hope beyond the suffering of this life. And that is an extraordinary difference. So Hosea includes himself, let us return. Just to do a real quick review, he says here several things about this return. Number one is it is to the Lord in verses, chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. It is to the Lord that we're returned, to return. The Lord our God, the Jews said, is one, the Shema. It is also the same Lord who tears and wounds, reminding us that he is not idle as men sin. He is not disengaged as we spiral downwards into sinful patterns of life. He is not disengaged or idle. He heals and bandages. So reminding us that he is merciful, though he is not idle, and though he can be severe, that he is also merciful and he will heal. It is the one who revives as well and raises up. He is the restorer of our lives. This is the Lord we're to return to. He's the one who can be made, the one who makes himself known or who can be known, who makes himself known. Uh, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but that's the very essence of my cry to God at the beginning of my Christian life. If it's possible for you to be known and for me to know you, Lord, reveal yourself to me. I can't can't get to you. I can't find you. I'm not sure if you exist. But if you do, and it's possible for me to know you and to know that with certainty, oh God, reveal yourself to me. And he did. I remember the first impression after that was, you want to know who I am? Read my word. And you can ask hope. In three months, I was from Genesis to Revelation every night consuming the Word of God. And my testimony afterwards was God showed up. Every single passage screamed, I exist. Especially in the Old Testament. Moses, when you go to Egypt, tell them I am. I am sent you. That's who you tell them I am. And man, I remember that spoke to my weary heart in that moment. I exist. That's what that word means. I exist. I am. That's who we're to return to. That's who he's calling us to return to. This God who is and the one who can restore and the one before whom we may live our lives and the one who is certain to come and to return certainly in the person of Christ Jesus. So that's who we're to return to. But strikingly in chapter 7, in two different places, in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 7, verse 16, and then also again in 14, 
And this is what set my mind this week. But in chapter 16, it says, God's saying almost as if he's speaking to Hosea regarding Israel, but he's saying they turn, they do turn, but not upward. Then if you look in verse 14, he says at the very last sentence in verse 14, they turn away from me. Hence my title, returning or turning, but not to God or returning, turning is not returning. Just as a little exercise uh, in my notes, I, I drew a circle and I said, you are here. And God is here. And you began to move away from God. And when God said return, logic would say that means go back to the place of origin. That's what return means. If you just say turn, well, I might turn to the right or I might turn to the left. And I might even turn in a general direction back towards him, but not directly. And what I did is I took my pencil and I did a little dotted line. If I stay on this trajectory, I might get close to him, but I still miss him. And if I stay on that trajectory, I get just as far away from him that way as I did the other way. That's turning. You're not getting any closer to God by turning. Return is what's called for here. And it seems as though God is saying to Hosea after he's appealed to the people, let us return to God. It's as if God is saying, they can't return, Hosea. Oh, they'll turn, but they can't return. And that's stunning to me. God's explaining, as it were, to his prophet why they can't return. And so that's what I want to share with you today. Let's read that chapter. Listen carefully and ask the Lord that you might understand and have insight here. The Lord says to Israel by extension and certainly to Hosea, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. And the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely, and they, the thief enters in, and bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them, and they are before my face. With their wickedness, they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire. From the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine, and he stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders at night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are like hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers, and their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes himself with nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers are devouring his strength, yet he doesn't know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on him, yet he doesn't know it. And though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. And so Ephraim has become like a silly dove with, without sense. They call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. And when they go, I'll spread out my net over them and I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them, 
for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine. They assemble themselves and they turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They're like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that our hearts may feel the gravity of what's being communicated here. I think to Hosea who had just yearned and invited the people to return along with him to the Lord. And Father, certainly through Hosea, Israel heard it and we are hearing it today. And Lord, we're, we're a generation who holds fast and we speak of the word repent often. But Father, I wonder how often we explain to those whom we say ought to repent that simply turning is not enough. That turning and not returning is actually to move us farther away from you. So Father, I pray that you may bring this to bear on us as believers today, Father, those who may be wayward and those who may be resistant and rebellious in their spirit and, and find themselves even this morning drifting away from you. And Father, I pray that you might help us to realize that a return is what is necessary for healing, not simply turning. So help us as we look into your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen. Several, I just listed these out and I'll go as far as I can and perhaps I'll conclude tonight. Certainly we'll conclude with part of this chapter tonight. But I want to I share with you this morning the things that seem to be obstructing their return. What's in the way? It seems like it's clear that God was saying they, they can't turn. They, they, can't, they can't return to me. They are turning, but not to me. So I wonder what's in the way. I mean, they hear the prophets. They hear Hosea. He was not the only prophet. They were hearing all the prophets. And all the prophets were saying, return to the Lord. So what's the obstruction? What's, what's the obstacle to their returning? Uh, we scratch our heads even as we read this severe condemnation and the certain judgment coming upon them. And we, we wonder and we look at Israel and we say, what's wrong with Israel? They're hard-hearted. What, what's the problem with Israel? Don't they see as though we were somehow more sensitive to the command to return ourselves? And I'm not sure we are. In verse 1, I think you see the first thing that's an obstacle to their return, which is really the depth, the real depth of their own sin and depravity. It's interesting when he says, when I would heal Israel, that's when the iniquity, uh, Ephraim's iniquity is uncovered. And Samaria's sin. So, so there's a juxtaposition between the willingness of God to bring healing and all that's necessary in that healing in exposing a sin. I read one commentator this week that said it's like the doctor who's been treating you chronically for some symptom for a number of years and then finally he decides, well, maybe we need to look a little deeper 
And then you go in for tests and he goes underneath all those symptoms and finds out that there is a terminal cancer or some terminal or chronic condition producing all the symptoms that you've been treating. And so his closer investigation or his bringing the healing to bear resulted in him discovering even more decay and the depth of the decay. That's what I think was hindering Israel here. Specific sins identified and rebuked and made unprofitable by God's chastisement might be abandoned. Yes, if you hurt enough, you might stop sinning in the sin that's causing you to hurt. If you drink and are consuming alcohol and when you get drunk, you're abusive to your family and your wife leaves you and your kids are terrified of you, it might be that you recognize that you love your wife and you don't want her to leave you and you want your kids to be, feel safe and home, so you might even abandon the alcohol for the, for the immediate benefit of having your wife and children. So, so when specific sins by God are identified and rebuked and, and made unprofitable by his chastisement, we might be abandoning those sins. Yet, the hidden root that bore those sins may yet thrive, hidden from the sight of men. So no matter what Israel tried to do, or made some effort to do, it would always fall away. During the period of the judges, we see that over and over. God would bring affliction, raise up a judge. They would cry out. He would raise up a judge, deliver them from affliction. And within 40 years at the most, most of the time, they would fall right back into the same sins. Why? Why? Because their suffering caused them to abandon certain sins for a time. But not having dealt with the root of those sins, if there was comfort or ease or luxury of some kind, they would revert right back to that same root and would produce sin again. And over and over and over again, it happened in Israel's history during the period of the Judges. In verse 1 that we shared from chapter 7, however, when true healing is brought to bear, that root, its depth and its vitality is, the, is discovered and exposed by the light of that healing, of that very healing, the light of truth and of glory. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20, and see how familiar this sounds in light of that. Jesus says in John, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. Now this phrase for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Israel could not return because the light exposed the depth of their depravity and they were not willing to have that exposed. So they went away from the light. And that's what I think he means when he says here, when I would heal them, when I when I sent my judgments and when I spoke hard truths to them and shined the light of their healing, it threatened them because it exposed a deeper root and they were not prepared to acknowledge that or have that exposed so they ran away from my light. Oh, they may have turned, but not to me because I was the source of the light and they run from the light. And so you can, it's possible now then to turn and even to turn away from some sinful behaviors and yet not be returning. 
and yet not be repenting. So their deeds would be exposed. So the depth of their sin and depravity, I think, was one obstacle. Let me just say here, uh, that's one of the things I think in our generation we don't get. That's why I opened with the statement I made, is that that root that's producing sin in your lives now, even as Christians, and certainly in your life before you became a Christian, is the old man, the old nature. You're not going to reform it. You can, you can make some adjustments on the peripheral and on the outside and do away with some things that are quote-unquote sinful things, but you've not reformed the old nature. It's still there. And though you may abandon this sin, you will embrace five more in its place because that's the way you're bent in your old nature. And this is exactly, I think, what God is saying to Hosea. They will not return to me, Hosea. Oh, they turn, but not upward because of the depth of their own depravity. To me, there's a gospel message there. They need Christ. Israel of old needed Christ. The southern and northern kingdom needs Christ. And every believer, every lost person ever brought into this world needs Christ because only Christ can put to death the old man and raise up the new man. Only Christ can plant the new tree that will bear fruit. You can't do it. And no religion can do it as well. Another obstacle for them in verse 2 I think was their self-deception regarding their sin. They were deceived in that their sin was hidden from or not remembered by God. He says, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. He says later in that verse, their, their sins are before my face. So they deceive themselves as though thinking that there are some outward sins that God has called out, but he don't see those, those hidden away ones. That'll keep you from returning. That'll keep you from, that'll make you turn. In fact, if God identifies them, but if God brings chastisement into your life to rebuke you for your sins, you might have enough sense even in your flesh to quit doing that. It's causing trouble in my life. So you might turn to some degree, but you deceive yourself if you think the depth and the root that produced that sin is not equally exposed and open to God Almighty. And that's terrifying to me sometimes. Not only that God has seen every sin I have ever committed, every sinful thought, but he sees it today, right now in this moment. If there is a hint of pride in my standing here, it is absolutely open to the eyes of God Almighty. And I will give an account for that. And if there is any of that in you or anyone in this sanctuary today, it is not concealed from God. That's heavy. That's crushing. But it's true. And if you don't accept that as true and, and realize that, you and I will become just like Israel. We will deceive ourselves into thinking that's hid away. Therefore, there's no need to return. I can just make a few turns, but not all the way back to God. That's how we produce so many nominal Christians in our generation today, if there is such a thing. People who have just made a few turns, cleaned up their lives a little bit, associated with a better kind of kind of people, but no real return, no real repentance, no new birth, and therefore no hope of eternity and of salvation in Jesus Christ. 
And so they go through life turning here and there, cleaning up around the edges while still catering to and feeding the old fleshly man who grows stronger and stronger and doesn't like the light. Let me just say this. If we feel our church is full of unregenerate people who don't like the light, how long will it be before the church can't preach the light? We won't be able to talk about the light in church. Let's give them some therapy. Let's give them some psycho babble. Let's make them feel good about themselves and boost their self-esteem. And they can all go away happy in the darkness. I'm fearful that that's the kind of church we're building in our generation today. And so it was in the life of Israel. Sinful men hardened uh, with hardened hearts mistake often mistake the mercy and patience of God in his restraint as indifference or as his indifference to their sin. And thus they go on in their sinning as though there will be no accounting to be given. We know in the New Testament very clearly, it is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. There is no sin hidden from God. And if you don't receive that, you're not going to return to him. You're going to make some turns and think you conceal all the others and that there's some class of sin that perhaps he's kind of let go because it's kind of a minor one. We were talking with the kids this morning about Proverbs 6, 16 or 19, 16 through 19, seven things God hates. And we were talking about lying tongues and we got into the conversation. One of the children asked, what's the difference between a white lie and, and the other kind of lie? One's white and the other one's black. I guess, I guess that's supposed to distinguish between two kinds of lying. All lying tongues are hated by God. All of them. And they're an abomination to him. So you figure out which he hates the most. That's a fool's errand. God is truth. And why would he not hate lies? Sinful men can deceive ourselves into going on sinning. Here's another one I thought was interesting about this passage, but um, we also deceive ourselves in believing that the corruption and the wickedness by which we are surrounded by, by is owing to the wickedness of somebody else. That's what really struck me about this particular passage because he says, I remember all their wickedness. And then he says about them, now their deeds are all around them. You're, you're, you're drowning in the wickedness that you have brought about and you think it's somebody else's fault. Man, that was convicting for us and for me. I mean, we look around in our nation today and we see the wickedness prevailing, but, and we never entertained a, 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 for ourselves, how might I have been contributing to that? That's a frightening thought. When I was doing that, I was thinking about, and this is kind of in chapter 3, verse 7 as well. I'll get there in a moment, but we can deceive ourselves in that. In fact, verse 3 through 7 kind of suggests that as well uh, because it talks about the whole of them. He says, with their wickedness, the king, uh, they make the king glad. So the king's thrilled with their wickedness and the princes are thrilled or glad with their lies. And they're all adulterers. <laughs> We, we want a king who will be glad of our lies and the king, and we're glad that the king likes our lies. And we're all together producing the darkness that we're living in. And he says their sins are all around them. 
And they think they're hidden from me. And they're wallowing in their sins. There's, it's hidden from them. They're the one that's concealed from. They've deceived themselves as though the darkness around them has nothing to do with them. You think about this for a minute, but all of us, go back as early as you can in your life and think about what you might have done and how you might have lived your life or perhaps raised your children in ways that would have been pushing back against the darkness and how devoted and zealous you ought to have been in regards to those things. And, and surely most of us could say, I probably didn't do enough. Or perhaps I taught my children that you can live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and find a balance and be happy throughout life without telling our children, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christ bids us come and die. Did we tell our children that? Did we tell them there's a cross to be born to follow Christ and that he had to be loved even beyond your own life? Would that have made a difference in the darkness we see today? Perhaps. So we can't sit in the darkness and curse the darkness and not accept some responsibility ourselves. If we do, if we do that and we deceive ourselves that way, we may turn, but we're not going to return. We're not going back to God because we've deceived ourselves in that darkness. In verses 3 through 7 also, you see one of the third obstacle I think that was in their way was essentially the company they kept. Uh, in that whole dynamic between chapter, uh, verse 3 through 7, let me just read that again. With their wickedness they make the king glad and the princes with their lies. They're all adulterers. This whole dynamic like an oven heated. The imagery here is that, is that they're just letting it get hotter and hotter and it's not a flash fire. It's been, it's been brewing. They start the fire and he don't poke the fire. He don't cease, uh, get up and start poking the fire to make it harder. It's just getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. He says, that's Israel. This didn't begin today. It began generation ago. The, the fire was kindled then and, and it's been seething and getting hotter and hotter and hotter along the way. And, and so this is not a quick thing. This is a long-term process by which they have become this way. Verse 5, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine and he stretched out his hand with the scoffers. Speaking there of the king is joining hands now with the scoffers. He ought to have set himself apart from the scoffers by his integrity and by his righteousness. But no, he's hand in hand with them. They're in on this together. And all the while they're plotting to throw, overthrow the king. So they're exploiting one another. The whole of Israel had become fodder for the sinful inclinations of every, every Israelite to exploit his neighbor for his own profit. The company they kept. No one was there to remind them of what returning looked like. There was nobody returning. They were all turning here and turning there, but they were never changing. They, were all to, they had all together become as one king, prince, and, man, and priest and people. So far they had gone away. Gone away. I'd looked, I thought about through that and I, I called Brother Steve Johnson because he had mentioned he may have to some of you uh, Overton's window. And as I was studying through this, I thought about the progression of this long-term uh, this long-term decline. And I think it may begin like this as far as Israel goes. Toleration becomes accommodation, 
which becomes participation, which becomes celebration. I mean, that's the, that's the progress. I mean, they're doing things that they once would have put someone to death for doing. <laughs> they are themselves, as a nation, adulterers. But now they'd learned to live in that and even to celebrate those very same things. Overton's window that Steve mentioned was talking pr primarily about how policy, how such radical things become policy. And jo Joseph Overton gave a progression there. And it sounded so familiar to me of what had gone down in the life of Israel. But first in Joseph and in Overton's window is the unthinkable. You hear something, you say, that's unbelievable you would even say that. Unthinkable. And then it becomes, that is just radical. That's just outright radical. Well, maybe there's some practicality to it. Well, it is getting more popular these days. Let's just make this our policy. <laughs> that is so true. And that's exactly what was unfolding in the life of Israel and in the life of every conglomeration of fallen men. That same progression will happen to us as well. And God is saying to Hosea, they won't return Hosea because this is the nature of the Israelites. Something must be done with the nature. And so they'll turn, yes, if things get hard enough, but they won't return unless I act in some way to change the heart and aren't you thankful that he did in Christ real quickly and I'll close I'll pick up these others tonight there was also well I, I thought about this kings princes and people alike uh, they, they learned to flatter exploit and overthrow one another wickedness in Israel had permeated all of life indeed it became a way of life common to every one of them and so it will be in America. Uh, do, you think, do you think, folks, 50 years, uh, 50, if you could take somebody that uh, passed away 50 years ago and bring them back and set them down in our culture today, you think they wouldn't be outraged at what we have learned to tolerate? They would say this whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's exactly what they would say. We've learned to accommodate those things. And how long will it be? before these sins become a matter of policy for us. We will celebrate them. We're already being asked to do that. In verses 8 through 11, another obstacle to their returning was the alliances that they formed and those whom they sought out for their security. You see that primarily in verse 8 through 11, but Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. He's become a cake not turned. He talks about strangers devouring his flesh or devouring his strength. The pride of Israelites testify against them. They have not sought the Lord. Rather, they go to Egypt and to Assyria. So mixes himself there might even mean that these alliances that they form with other nations for power and for security, they're turning Things are getting bad in Israel. We might, we might need some security here. Well, who's powerful and who may be a threat? Well, maybe it's Israel. Maybe it's Assyria. Let's go make a deal with them because we need to reach out and sustain and provide for our security. That's a turn. That's a turn. 
just not a return. It's not turning to God. It's turning to men. Turning to men. What do we do now? Look at us today as a people. I mean, we're looking for the right leader, the right politician, the right party, somebody to provide for security. That's a turn. We can turn and perhaps we'll fix some things on the peripheral, but our security is just as much a threat under, under one leadership as it is another if it is not ultimately found in God himself. So we can turn all sorts of ways, seeking out our security. You might turn to bank accounts and 401ks, and you might turn in a multiple different directions, assuming that your security rests in smart planning. But how do you know, old man, what you will do or what your life will be? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? How do you know that tonight might not be the night that you're called to account? Israel was looking outwardly for its alliances. He mentioned mixing here. It might have been even been inter, intermixing with the nations, the heathen nations who were bringing Israel even farther away from their God, introducing pagan and heathen, heathenistic ideals of what God is or who God is and how we worship God and all those things added to their own rebellion. And this became an obstacle for them. You know, I, I think one of the things sometimes that keeps us returning to God is that we've got too much security here. I worked a long career. I have a great bank account. We have wonderful insurance. I don't really, I don't really feel the need for God. I'll, I'll keep him for the big stuff. When I die, I want to go to heaven. And so, God, you just hang there. Just be there. When I, when I leave this world, because I know that there's only one person who can take me to heaven, but until then, I got this other stuff taken care of. Let me just say with all my heart, no, you don't. No, you don't. If you have those things and those instruments and you've been wise and invested, God bless you. It is a mercy of God that he has prompted you to prepare for that, for that. And you ought to do those things and provide for yourself and your family as a part of your Christian life and is a part of integrity but your security still rests in the mercy of God you and I rest in his mercy notice in verse 9 that essentially he sells his independence he's going to these other nations see there was a there's always a bargain involved in that I gotta give up something to make this alliance had they just trusted God I mean they already did this with their king you remember they had a king, God. And they asked Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations have. Somebody to go in and out and be our head and our figurehead. And, and Samuel warned them, no, 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 you, you got the greatest king of all. You don't need another king. But yet they insisted and God grants it in his mercy. And then has Samuel to say, give them their king. But warn them in regards to a king. Be, there's a price to pay for a king. And he warns them, and yet they insist, give us a king. And so God gives them a king like they were expecting. Head and shoulders above everybody. Warrior. People scared of our king. We want a king that can deter and intimidate others. Okay, here's your king. Didn't work out too well for them. There's always a price to be paid when we seek our security other than in God. No king can provide it. 
They also started displaying their weakness. They were giving up their strength, as it were, in verse 9. Verse 9 as well talks about the gray hair start spurt, uh, working their way in. Uh, that's my theory. That's why I keep my hair so short, because when it starts going gray, it'll all be gone, and you won't know it went gray. It'll just be gone. The old saying, I'm not worried about it turning gray. I'm worried about it turning loose. I love the imagery here because he says, you're, you're getting weaker by the day. And you're, you're aging out. And you're losing your respect and your stature in the world. The nations are not looking at Israel as a nation to be feared for their great God. You sold out your great God and your weakness is showing up. And to them, you're just a gray-haired old man who don't have any strength anymore. You're, you're undermining your own security. You think a nation won't try to take you when they see you that weakened? Yes. But it's because you turned, but you didn't turn to me. You didn't turn to me. Notice his pride in verse 10. He's failing, yet he thinks himself secure. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet he still has not returned to the Lord. He won't return to him. His own pride is bearing witness against him, but he won't turn back to the Lord. I'll close with this thought and conclude this tonight, but this is so sobering to me in regards to our nation today. And even in the church today, it's almost as if we want people to turn. You know, turn, turn from that alcohol or substance abuse. Turn from those illicit relationships and sinful relationships. Turn from that habit or this habit. Turn from that pattern or this pattern. But how often are we saying return? Repent. Go to God. Go back to God. 180 degrees is the best course to take because all the other ones just take longer to get there. So turn from where we are, return back to the place of origin. And for us Christians today, we who are Christians, things can creep into our lives, whether it's through fatigue, just weariness in this world. Things can creep into our lives and complacency, and we can find that we've gone away from God, and we can feel our sap, strength sapping away and ourselves feeling aged and weak in the faith. And we can look out and turn other capacities and try to shore ourselves up, turn to this book or that council or, or this or that. When the real remedy is to come back to God. Repent. Turn away from those things. There's nothing hidden from God. He knows every weakness and he knows every sin and he knows every ounce of pride. And the only thing we have to us is to come back to God, fall before him and acknowledge that he is God. He knows all things. And, and though you are ripe for his judgment, you are crying out for his mercy, seeing that cleanly and clearly in the singular work of Christ Jesus upon the cross. That's our hope. That's our only hope. Come tonight and stand with me and you're invited to come back tonight because I want to share a couple more of those and then some concluding thoughts from chapter 7. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's just been amazing to me as we've worked our way through Hosea, just the parallels in so many ways of what the world has become today, not just America but other nations as well. 
Father, it seems as though we are scrambling all over the globe to try to figure out which is the wisest alliance and how we can deter others and face someone else down if we get the right alliance. And Father, there's just this sense in the heart of believers that this is chaos and that the more we seek worldly security and move away from you, the less security we have. And so, Father, I pray that you would begin here in the churches in our nation, Father, that calling people who profess your name back to you. Lord, help us not just to try to clean up the edges and the peripheries of our lives to give some outward appearance of a Christian life. But, Lord, help us to come back to you, understanding that the very nature must be crucified. The old man must die, and he must die every single day that the new, might, the new man might live and thrive. And so, Father, make it so in our lives as the church and as Diamond Hill members. And, Father, I pray that you would make it so in every church throughout our nation. And, Father, when the church is alive again and, and thriving and vital, then perhaps we can preach the gospel in the power of the Spirit to this world and that you might be gracious to open many eyes and many hearts and call this nation back to its foundations, back to its, the faith of its fathers and even more. Father, have your way now as we spend a few moments in, in contemplation and consideration of what you've spoken to our hearts through your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.